This is something right. that people that study traffic have realized that once you get above four lanes, every lane that you add doesn't add extra flow. In fact, it doesn't really do much. The diminishing return just stops. There's not really uh, any better uh, traffic from four lanes. You mean four lanes, lanes on each side? Uh, yeah. So that's an eight okay. lane highway. Yeah. Above that, and? it just doesn't, it, and eight lanes isn't vastly more efficient than six lanes. Uh, six, six lanes is extremely efficient. You add the next lane on both sides to eight and you don't you would think, well, that's going to be a 33% improvement. You could jump, but it isn't. It's, it's like a 5% improvement. And then above that, you don't get any improvement at all. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. And that'll be enough of that holy two energeticness. We've got to stop that immediately too early in the morning. Wait a minute. We're economists. It's always too early in the morning to have energy. <clears throat> All right. Oh, this is this is a good one. This is great. This I said we were going to talk about this at the beginning of the episode. Um, why is it that long-term interest rates are rising when the Federal Reserve didn't raise interest rates? Uh, and I've gotten that question multiple times recently. Um, and I'll give you a quick answer to that and then a more in-depth answer. First off, the Federal Reserve doesn't touch long-term interest rates when it changes interest rates directly. They're talking about very, very, very overnight, very short rates like just tonight, right? Not 10 years, not 30 years, not mortgage rate stuff. And the mortgage rates have been going up. The treasury rates have been going up. Over the last month, they've been up. They're up almost half a percentage point. When we look around, the Federal Reserve didn't raise rates. What's going on? Money is leaving the longer term market because rates are low. Would you want to loan money at 30 years at a rate that's less than you could get at the bank for leaving it there overnight. Why would you do that? So people aren't doing it, which means there's less money available to make those loans, which means that the people that are making the loans can charge more. It's supply and demand again. The longer term loans have been suffering. We've been hearing about this. There's fewer and fewer mortgages being given. Well, we've, we're beginning to see an uptick there. Mortgages are coming back. There's fewer people making the loans because you couldn't make as much money there. So they pushed the money into shorter term stuff, which means there's less money available to make loans, which means interest rates go up. And, and you are... Looking, I'm you. Maybe I may be frozen on your screen. I said, go, go ahead. You, you can add. There's another reason that it, that the intermediate term interest rates and long term interest rates are going up during the uh, pandemic. The Fed just didn't just buy short term securities. They went out and bought long term treasuries on the open market to put money into the system to keep us from having a collapse. And when they put the money into the system, that meant they bought longer-term bonds. And now they're selling those longer-term bonds to shrink their balance sheet, and they're sucking money out of the system to kill inflation. And they are the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and we need to break for commercials. Yeah. So when we're talking about longer-term rates coming up, I invite you to go back to listen to our 
radio conversations over the last year where we've said longer-term rates are going to have to come up. People were expecting shorter-term rates to come down to make the yield curve uninvert. We've been saying the long-term rates are going to come up, and that's what we're saying. Uh, and it, it sounds like we're brilliant on this, but this is right out of textbook. You, anybody can look this up in an econ textbook and say, oh, this is what happens like this. Oh, okay. And people think we're brilliant because things are functioning in, in very small parts of the economy the way they're supposed to. Or the rest of the economy, not. So we got a lot to talk about this episode, this second hour. We've talked a little bit about the government shutdown, but and you talked a bit about the kind of perfect storm of weirdnesses hitting right now. Uh, but I think it's a good time to talk about that. Um, we've got a government shutdown. What's that going to do? Well, it's going to stop paying somewhere between 2 and 3 million people their monthly and semi-monthly checks, it's just not going to happen. Um, there, there's going to be student loan repayment starting back up. Um, and we were, you were talking about a case that we can't actually talk about on the air. But what we have seen is that federal employees are going to be required to not get paid at the same time that they will be required to pay the federal government for their student loans again, which is just uh, that's not irony, by the way. This is sardonic. This is, I'm sorry, Alanis Morissette, isn't it ironic? Pedantically is totally wrong. It's, isn't it sardonic? Sardony is when two things collide well, that would be kind of funny normally, but not really anymore. Uh, irony is when two happy things happen. <laughs> I think the 20 people who are busily shutting down the government who have no alternative except to, they're offering no alternative except to do on my way or the highway, are failing to recognize, well, they either don't care, I, I can't believe they fail to recognize this, but a lot of our soldiers, many of whom were deployed overseas, have student loans, or their wives or husbands have student loans. The GI and, Bill exists, and it's really cool, but that isn't the only way people get well in a family get their education in many cases they got their education before they went in the armed forces um and they've got student loans to pay and to cut their pay off arbitrarily to stop paying them and they have to they have to be on the one particularly overseas they they're not going to be able to stay home because they've got places they need to guard things i mean if you got an aircraft carrier in the middle of the pacific or an aircraft carrier that's over in the just turn off the engines, uh, in everyone. In the Western Pacific, that is get out the fishing powering poles. the Chinese. Get out the they fishing poles. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. They can't just drop anchor uh, and send everybody home. So those soldiers and those sailors and those airmen and women around the world, they got to keep working. And they have already received their notices from the federal government that the federal government will take action against them if they don't pay the student loans they haven't been paying since 2020. I just can't even imagine the thought process. There isn't one. In those representatives' minds it, to punish our soldiers who are defending our country. I think they are so wrapped up in the tree that they're arguing about that they forgot that they're in a national forest. And, and, and they're arguing about the tree so much that the whole forest is suffering. And I want to point out that when they shut the government down, the members of Congress still get paid. Yeah, that's uh, now, that's John ironic Carter, for them. It's sardonic for the rest of us. I will give John Carter his credit in our district here in Central Texas. He has announced that he has ordered his chief of staff to withhold his pay as long as the government is shut down. Now, he is not exactly poverty-stricken. He is a very wealthy man, so it isn't probably won't hurt him one way or the other to not get his pay during that period. But at least he's 
doing something right. The people who are the radicals in the Republican Party, the 20 or so who are shutting down the government, I've not encountered any of them who are not going to get paid. They are going to continue to receive their money while millions of people don't get paid and are still required to pay their bills. Oh, I, I could get on a soapbox here really quickly. Having been a soldier, having been overseas, young soldiers particularly don't exactly have a big cash cushion to fall back on. And it's yeah, it's going to be interesting. And, and, you know, every time this happens, the government says to the landlords, hey, you need to um, have some respect for our soldiers. Here's the deal. You don't have respect for the soldiers if this is what's happening. Um, this is Congress's lack of respect. Uh, y- you don't stop paying your employees because you can't agree on what to cut. You don't cut everything. I mean, this is... When I said last hour, this is a fascinating little coincidence. Two incidences happening simultaneously that really are similar. The union has shut down a lot of the manufacturing for the three very large automakers in the United States. Stellantis, General Motors, and Ford. United Auto Workers have shut them down. Why? Because they're insisting that their pay goes up. And they're also insisting that the people who work in a factory producing parts for internal combustion aren't going to lose their jobs when electric comes along. Well, the problem with that is exactly what's the problem at Congress. If you don't want to lose your job insisting that you're not going to work unless you get paid more, there's a little bit of counterintuitiveness there. Now, I'm not trying to say they're getting paid enough or not getting paid enough, but one of the legs that this stool is standing on at the UAW is they don't want to lose their jobs to electric manufacturing. And that's going to require retooling. It's going to require education and uh, training for the employees so that they can go to the new equipment. Well, in the middle of this, Congress is doing the same thing. It's we're not going to pay the soldiers because I wanted, I didn't want 11 bills to decide on. I wanted nine bills. And that was our agreement. You said we were going to have nine bills to read, not 11. Uh, well, the first bill, they didn't know how many bills there were going to be. And it was one of the agreed upon things. And that was the Department of Defense spending bill. That was presented and it was part of the original agreement. And the r- extreme end of the Republicans said they're not even going to approve that. Well, this is a definitely a baby in the bathwater water situation. I mean, there's not a whole lot of bathwater. It's mostly baby. Uh, And the same is true, I mean, kind of across the board. If you have a minority who's not really, um, by minority, I don't mean racial, I mean a minority of people in a group who don't really care if the group suffers or, or does well. They don't really care. And they're stopping the rest of the group who for different reasons want different things, but in their own opinions, they want it because they think it's going to be better for the group. Democrats don't agree with Republicans on almost anything. And the Democrats will point at all the things that they think the Republicans are going to do to damage the future. And the Republicans don't agree with the Democrats, and they're going to point at all the things the Democrats are going to do to damage the future. But both of them, the vast majority of them, honestly believe that their views are valid and the best thing for the country. Then you have a small group of people in both parties who don't care about the well-being of the country. They have one or two things that for the rest of us are relatively minor that they're willing to sacrifice everything over. And that's where we're standing in multiple 
parts of our economy and the spending around it, not just at the government, but this is the strikes at, at at UPS. This is the strike. I mean, they're valid beliefs at UP, UPS and UAW, by the way. They want better pay. Okay. But when you take it to such a drastic measure of, if you don't agree with us, we're going to destroy the whole business, it better be a good reason. And it's really hard to point at this and say, yes, you're angst over losing your jobs in five years. It's okay if it puts us into a recession today. Uh, and that's that's the weirdness, is that all of this stuff could combine if it's protracted into the very recession that we were poised to avoid. We're growing very quickly right now, but let's see how many things we can throw in the road to slow down the traffic. Uh, and that's what's happening. And I, I know you have a lot more to say on the subject, so I'm going to hand it back to you. Well, I guess we've kind of beat this one down. Uh, it's probably a good idea to to spread out into some other subjects at this point. I'm personally very unhappy with the members of Congress who've determined that in order to get their way and cut off, primarily to cut off aid to uh, Ukraine, they are going to basically stop the pay for soldiers who have to, and they're particularly the ones, their families are left back here who get the paychecks. Uh, and it just, a lot of things boggle my mind. But that, that, it, that attitude of we only have 20 people who want to do this out of 438 members of Congress um, and the 20 people being willing to wreck everything to get what they want. Just I'm, I know it's happened before, but not I guess maybe I'm getting older. I don't like it. Anyway, I think we can say it sticks in our craw. Yeah. If you don't have a craw, to, then you need to get one. Well, let's talk about the economy for a little bit. Let's be straight up. The U.S. Uh, in in the Financial Times was a headline. U.S. The U.S. is on the brink of a new growth cycle. Uh, and I happen to agree with that. Why do I agree with that? Well, a couple of things are going on out there that are pretty impressive. Uh, spending continues to rise, and, and it's consumer spending continues to rise. It, it, last month, uh, it rose at roughly 0.2%. Inflation was up 0.1%, which is a very, it's 1.2% if you annualize it. Uh, we have the, so what we've got is this discretionary income in the United States is going up at about 2% a year, which indicates where the growth is coming from. We're having increased productivity. We're having increased wages. We're having, we have the lowest unemployment or close to the lowest unemployment we've ever had in the history of the United States outside of wartime where everybody gets drafted and and everybody has to go to work. We have uh, an amazingly resilient economy, and that's showing up in a lot of places. Some of the standard forecasting tools, the Purchasing Managers Index, for example, for manufacturing is down. Uh, they're seeing, uh, but at the same time, durable goods orders are up. Now, what does that mean? Durable goods, particularly commercial durable goods, which is what I was looking at, are up 0.9% last month. What does that mean? Commercial durable goods mean that a company has enough money to do what they want. They've, they've got excess money. And I shouldn't say excess, but they have cash flow. They have good cash flow. They have good savings. And they've determined that within the next year or so, they're going to see more orders come in. So they invest in new equipment and buildings and expand what they're doing to accommodate the new orders that they're anticipating. From, but, and their customers are telling them, we're going to be making some orders next year. They're, this is where the PMI comes in. We are seeing a temporary lag right now, it sounds like it's coming down. And it has been coming down this year in manufacturing. Well, what does that mean? Well, the problem with looking at that is it's a year-over-year -year measurement normally. And last year, we were still recovering from the pandemic. 
In other words, we were going absolutely full throttle, full afterburner uh, in the United States in manufacturing and services and everything else. And the fact that it is a little slower now, the acceleration or or even the growth, the growth rate is slower, is pulled back and to some degree is reducing the amount of orders they're getting in doesn't mean we're in trouble. It just means we're coming back to a sustainable rate of growth. We were running along just after the pandemic at about three and 4% growth per year, which in the United States economy simply can't do that. We don't. And if you wonder why the United States economy can't do that, get on I-35 most days and try to drive to either Dallas-Fort Worth or Austin, and you'll understand. Yeah. There's not a lot more trucks can get on that highway. It's it's jammed. And uh, you can't just add more lanes. This is something right. that people that study traffic have realized that once you get above four lanes, every lane that you add doesn't add extra flow. In fact, it doesn't really do much. The diminishing return just stops. There's not really uh, any better uh, traffic from four. You mean to four five lanes, lanes on each side? Uh, yeah. So that's an eight-lane okay. highway. Yeah. Above that, and it just doesn't. It, and, and eight lanes isn't vastly more efficient than six lanes. Uh, six six lanes is extremely efficient. You add the next lane on both sides to eight, and you don't. You would think, well, that's going to be a thirty-three percent improvement. You could jump, but it isn't. It's it's like a five percent improvement, and then above that, you don't get any improvement at all. My wife and I drove to Austin last week during the week and back. And there were several instances during the middle of the day, it's not during rush hour, when the traffic slowed down. We slowed down. As a matter of fact, coming back yesterday from uh, Georgetown, I had the, or rather from, oh, day before yesterday, coming back from Fort Worth, I had the same issue that occurred. There were no accidents. Nothing unusual happened. They're just compressions where everybody slows down and then they speed up again. That is an indication that the six-lane-wide I-35 I was driving on, three lanes on each side, was at maximum capacity so that anybody slowing down very slightly creates a compression wave that slows everybody else down. And if you and I've seen movies of this. I've seen videos of this from above. You see this compression wave flowing along the highway. Which, by the upstream. way, moves backward in location geographically that compression wave will move back through the traffic so long as it's at high utilization you can watch that compression wave so say you're in southbound traffic you can watch it move all the way up through the state of texas yeah that's real it's crazy that That means we're at capacity we can't go much more we're literally at capacity now the railroads are are starting are saying we've finally got a little space, a little breathing space, um, and, and they have a little more capacity than they're using, although they were at maximum capacity a few months ago. And But in the airlines are having delays. And so we're at maximum uh, capacity in the United States or close to it. So we can grow at about 1.8 to 2% a year consistently over a long period of time. Anything faster than that, and we run into bottlenecks. Now, there's there, in the future, not even far in the future, on the traffic end, just the utilization for, for trucks going up and down the highway, for some reason, trucking is called shipping, which just, just, just that's hard for me. But so shipping moving up and down the highway is also hard for my eight-year-old. What? Yes, we're shipping up and down the highway in these trucks. Um, 
in the future, and not that far in the future, trucks will be driving themselves. Well, what does that have to do with anything? In the history of the internet, we had these pinch points where we looked at broadband and we thought, this is nev- we're never going to be able to speed this up. We've got processors that are increasing in their speed of processing really quickly, but we've come to the, we're at the end of what we can squeeze through this copper wire to get strong internet connection. At the beginning, everybody was just shoving information and kind of a stream of information. And they realized, hey, we can put this into packets and put a code at the front and the back of the packet to say where it is and what connects. It's kind of like slot A into um, or tab A into slot B, that sort of instruction at the beginning and the end of the packet. And then instead of shoving all the information, kind of pushing it into a tube, they started firing missiles of information through it, packets. And you still get packet collision in routers, things where it's trying to send and receive at the same time. So it's gotten incredibly better at that. The software has improved and improved and improved. When we look at physical traffic, we're trying to shove a bunch of cars through a limited space. It's the same thing. And over time, as the cars are able to not only look around them and see where they are, but also to communicate with each other in traffic situations. And that's going to occur. That's going to happen. It's not happening right now. Right now, each car that drives itself is independent of the cars around it, except through a kind of a gross informational network. Tesla is beginning to communicate car to car through their network so that they can help there. But Basically, in the future, cars are going to need to communicate with each other, and the whole road system will need to communicate with the cars to let them know what size of packets to be, what speed to be driving, all that stuff. And that will allow us to expand our ability to move things around the country exponentially faster. And it's kind of weird. You won't be able to drive manually on those roads. But that's, we're talking about now we're talking about decades in the future, but we can see the technology for it today. That's where we're going. Right now, we're depending on truck drivers, and they've been through the worst whiplash of almost anybody during the pandemic. They're worse than teachers because one month you couldn't get enough truck drivers no matter what you paid, and the next month you're you're laying them all off, and then the month after that you're grabbing them all back up and bringing them back. They've been through the ringer. Over the past three three years, They're, the average age of truck drivers in the United States is approaching 60. What does that mean? Well, it means that the average age of the truck drivers in the United States is approaching 60. I think everybody can come to conclusions on what that means. It, it means what it says, but what does it mean to the future? Well, either we need a lot of young truck drivers that we're not getting. There's not a huge number of youngsters joining up in the truck driving world. Or technology is going to replace them as they retire. That's how this how this occurs. You don't fire people that are doing a job that you've been paying them to do efficiently. You you when it comes to technology, you replace people that aren't replacing themselves. You saw this throughout the last century and and a half in agriculture. Uh, in the last 30 years, there, wasn't ma- there weren't massive layoffs across farms as tractors have learned to drive themselves. Just less people joined up to be a farmer. And that's what's happening in trucking right now. So technology will be stepping in. Capacity utilization will be easier then. We'll have more capacity because productivity in the way we 
traffic our vehicles and the way we ship on land uh, will get better. There. Um, that was my way too long interjection into what you were saying about capacity utilization. We're growing as fast as we possibly can right now. Faster. We can't keep this up. And uh, it's certainly interesting that we're growing and other places aren't too. Uh, there's there's reasons, obviously, but it, our peculiar way of doing things is the primary reason that we're doing so well. Um, there's a couple of, there's a lot of things going on in the United States right now simultaneously, and not the least of which is disengagement from China, which is, if you've been listening very long, and I've said this for a long time, as we just, the reason we had super low unemployment and super low inflation. The reason that all of that happened over the last decade or so is China. China's entry of cheap labor into the market. The United States invested, mainly the United States, some European capital went into China because having a lot of labor doesn't do you any good unless you've got a lot of capital to invest to build the places for people to work. The factories that, for instance, iPhones are being made in. A lot of capital came from the United States invested in China. The capital flowing into China has just about disappeared. Yeah. They have excess labor again, very well-educated excess labor. They have a very high unemployment rate among young college-educated uh, people in China. And that's not coming back. Uh, we are not going to suddenly find the government of India, for example, which, by the way, now has more people than China, suddenly change into something that will allow all those people who are behind oxen in the fields to wind up on factory floors doing work. Uh, the government is not particularly dynamic in, uh, in India, and it isn't going to make big changes. So what we're going to see going forward, in my opinion, is longer-term interest rates are going to be up where they were in the 90s. That's and pretty much where they are right now. We're very much in the same economic condition as we were in the early 90s, early mid-90s. Uh, and, and we're seeing very, very fast growth because new technology is being introduced, particularly in the form of AI. We're seeing a lot of things going on that are that's pushing us forward. We're seeing capacity limitations push back against us, and we have a shortage of labor. Well, we had all of that back then, too. The difference is, in the 90s, companies discovered in the that they could expand into China, which had a very, under, as I think it was Ding, had a very business-friendly approach. Who? Chairman Ding. Yeah, I'm. I'm saying who? Who was later? Yes, who? I, I'm not sure who. Who was later? Okay, sorry, no, I, I couldn't. I can't help it. I can't help it. Bad puns with that name are mandatory. So please go ahead. Um. So the issue is that be prepared, looking forward, that longer. And and I'm not the only person saying. Was we were pretty much the only people saying this a year ago, but now it seems to be the popular song in, to 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 sing that long-term interest rates are going to be higher than they are today. And they're not going to go back to super low anytime in the near future because we don't have another China to introduce into the system. When did this last happen? It happened in the 1920s. We're paralleling the 1920s very interestingly at this point. What happened? Where did all the labor come from in the 1920s? It came out of Eastern Europe. Following World War One, uh, the Eastern Europe was in impoverished and in pain, and they had a lot of people leaving Eastern Europe and coming into the United States. And those people were put to work on assembly lines in the United States. Ford is famous for doing that. And we had a significant drop in the cost of things. And 
we ran into very much the same problems we're having right now. And we'll probably have very much the same results we're having right now. But gear up in your planning for the fact that interest rates are going to trend higher through this decade, that you need to be prepared for that. And you need to recognize that those things are in, they're cyclical. And at some point, we will get another socioeconomic crisis, um, probably in the early 2030s, that will cause interest rates to come back down. But these things happen for a cause. And if you look at the macroeconomics of this, you can see the cause unfolding and you can benefit from it. Yeah. That, One I mean, of the things. This is pure ahead. education, what you're talking about right here. This is fantastic. Um, during the 90s, we had interest rates that were, for the compared to the last couple of decades, it's they sound exorbitantly high, uh, running around in the 7 and 8% for mortgages. Um, and it's true, but that's where it's running today. So you said we introduced a China. Well, part of you say, how, how does this fight inflation having cheap labor somewhere else? Well, anybody that's been in the workforce for any time in the last two decades, not counting the last three years, has known that if you went to your boss and you said, I want a raise, I'm doing well, they'd say, I can't give you a raise. We're competing with other people that aren't giving raises. The kind of the biggest new competitor was China. If if you're making bed frames and you want a raise, well, China's going to make it cheaper. So you can't have a raise. And a lot of bed frame companies went out of business anyway. So then they had to go to work somewhere else. And again, you've got this other competitor and it kept our prices low at the you know back in the late 90s there were all kinds of logos on everything in Walmart made in America and those went away why well because of prices they tried to stick by that way by the way that in the boardrooms and in the executive meetings of Walmart they worked really hard on sticking to buy America but they were losing business to everybody else that was suddenly able to provide cheaper products from China so they realized that when they put a cheaper product next to a more expensive product and it had an American flag on it, people bought the cheaper product. So they did what people in marketplaces do. They replaced all the expensive American stuff with cheap Chinese stuff. And a lot of American businesses changed or went into different businesses or went out of business. Others kind of flourished in the middle of it by causing their products to be made over there. So there's the, this as you said, a macroeconomic story happening here that prevented inflation for a while. We couldn't raise prices because somebody else would undercut us. And if you did it anyway, well, they would undercut you and the prices wouldn't rise. They'd, they might actually go down when you went away. So this concept of we introduced cheap labor, cheap manufacturing, until we have the ability to introduce cheaper manufacturing again so that anybody can manufacture what you're manufacturing. And if you increase your price, then they'll just come in and undercut you. Then we have to have more expensive money. Well, what, what does that mean? It means it's more expensive to get a loan to go into business. Otherwise, we have inflation. So we're using it's a different tool to fight, fight inflation. The marketplace was fighting inflation for a while. Well, that stopped. China became non-cooperative as a marketplace. What is that? It doesn't be a good thing, bad thing. The government said, shut down. We don't want COVID. From a marketplace perspective, the rules, the reasoning behind it don't matter. We couldn't get the things we needed. And people still wanted those things and they were willing to pay money, more money for it. And that caused spending in other places to produce it. 
no business wants to say no when you're trying to give them money. It's a weird thing about business is they like money. It's very strange. If you say, I would like to buy this, and you say no, they're going to go somewhere else and buy it. And this business owner is going to want to get it. So this is this is the deal. During the pandemic, when we couldn't get things and people were saying, I'll pay you as much as I've got. I will pay you whatever you want for this thing. Business owners said, whoa, I got to jump on this. I need to manufacture and it's not working in China, so I'm going somewhere else. Well, the somewhere else can be more expensive than China was. China's more expensive now than it was for lots of reasons. So put that all together and we've got to wait for automation to really kick into gear to fight inflation. And that's when we could see inflation fighting the interest rates, fighting inflation come back down again. Also, the Federal Reserve has to sell a huge amount of bonds back before we see high interest rates go away. Um, and I think we have actually beaten that subject now. Uh, Probably have. Yeah. Um, we, we have, you know, the, there are really four big pieces of the economy that's really hard not to keep focusing back on right now. The oil prices, the UAW strike, the, the government shutdown. Um, when, when you throw all the, the, and the student loan payments coming back together, when you throw that all in, that's happening right now. It's hard to talk about other things, but there are actually other things happening. Um, as we've talked about continuously for months we're growing at a fast rate in the United States. Our GDP is expected to be in the 4% region, between 3 and 4%. And that's faster growth than we're seeing almost anywhere else on the planet. None of, our, none of the major powers of the United States is coming, are coming anywhere near that. And when you consider that the United States economy is also the biggest, having a higher percentage on a larger base means that our growth is huge right now. What what's happening? Well, we're still spending and we're still hiring and we're still producing. And yes, there are pinch points, but the pinch points are how fast we expand. They're not generally slowing us down. That's exciting. Now, looking ahead, crystal balls are weird because there's no way four months ago we could have said, yep, the UAW is going to shut down three major automakers. Well, what's that doing for Tesla and Toyota? Well, if your car manufacturer starts with a T, you've just won the lottery uh, because everybody's going to have a shortage of cars in the near future, except that Tesla and Toyota are not. Um, and that's that's the UAW shooting their companies in the foot because they want something. Uh, that trend, by the way, also fits extremely well with where we are in history. You just mentioned this, that we're paralleling 1920. This was when unions were kind of reaching up and saying, hey, things are looking scary, pay us more. That's not a good time to ask for a raise, side note. When things are looking scary isn't the time that you should say, boss, I'm going to shut down the company if you don't give me a raise. And that's what's happening here. It sound, man, it sounds like I'm totally anti-union when I'm talk, talking about this subject. But the timing of this strike across multiple manufacturing, this is not a good negotiation tactic. This is protection racket stuff. This is where I can point back to organized crime as a method of negotiation only it's not crime. What they're doing is is legal. It's just damaging. There are a lot better ways of negotiating for higher wages. A lot better. Uh, and unfortunately, they're not being used by either side of this. Ford seems to be trying to get to a solution, but the UAW is definitely flexing right now. Ah, 
Okay. And we're about out of time. This is the personal wealth coach with Jeff and Jake. Mac Lure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.